You either get it or you don't. Without further ado, I give you Showgirls! Am I just gonna watch this movie until I die? Absolutely no one under the age of 17 is allowed. I don't think they have an attractive star. They don't do anything original in the screenplay. I didn't care for the film. Lousy movie. It's really lousy acting. It was a disaster. It's kind of raunchy. Very, very bad. Let me guess. Worst movie? Showgirls. Showgirls. You got it. <laughs> Good guess. Welcome to Vegas. Hello and welcome to the Matt's Movie Reviews Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 273. Out now on demand and digital is You Don't Know Me, a documentary that delves into the extraordinary post-release life of showgirls, offering analysis, critique, and varied perspectives on anything and everything in the orbit of Paul Verhoeven's notorious 1995 movie. Joining me now to talk about You Don't Know Me is the film's director, Jeffrey McHale. Jeffrey, I thank you very much for joining me. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I had to think back a little bit. I think the first time I watched Showgirls, I think it must have been around 1996 or 1997. At that time, it was on cable TV. Cable just came in like the year before in Australia. Um, and it was pretty clear. I was 15, 16 years old. It was pretty clear what the appeal of that movie was for me at that age, age bracket. Um, <laughs> um, but since then, I, hadn't, I, I haven't really delved into it again until I, started, I watched your documentary. Um, and it's clear that this is a film that had an impact on you. Um, Will, do you remember the first time you saw the film? And what was it that you saw that really kind of clicked with you and stuck with you to the point where here we are, how many years later, and you made a documentary about it? Yeah, I, you know, I came to it late in life. I was uh, definitely way too sheltered uh, and, and and younger when it first came out. Um, I was probably still watching Saved by the Bell uh, when it was first in theaters. And so it took me about 10 years uh, to see it. And so at that point, it had already, you know, it was well underway uh, on, you know, with the whole queer classic thing and so I um I was hanging out with a friend one night you know when I was going to film school in Chicago and and, and I feel like it was it, it that's how most people see it is you know a friend basically sits you down and, and says you need to watch it right now and mm-hmm. once once he, once he found out that I hadn't seen it he walked over to his DVD shelf popped popped it off the wall and put it you know popped it in the TV and you know my mind was just blown from the you know the first few minutes of the film it's just like you know, it, it's like nothing I've ever seen before. It, it it felt so bad, but like in a special way uh, and in a u- unique way and in an exciting way. And um, I just didn't want it to end. You know, there, there were there were lines I've never heard uttered before in in a film. There's things, uh, there's performances. I mean, just it's really hard to kind of pinpoint one thing because just the whole entire experience was just um, it, it's a unique experience from like a viewer's standpoint because so many things run through your head. You know, first you're like, what's what were they thinking? What was intended? What was you know what what exactly is going on here? And and the truth of it, you know, I don't think we've figured out what exactly happened and what what was going on in the film. And I think that's part of the reason why we're talking about it now and why people are still interested in it. And so it was, um, it was always a film uh, that I enjoyed. I probably watched it maybe once a year. Um, and you know, you'd see little things, uh, would pop out something new always. 
And then um, I was actually at the 20th anniversary screening out here in Los Angeles, where um, which it, that is featured in the end of uh, You Don't Know Me, where you know Elizabeth, Elizabeth Berkeley comes out and introduces the film, and and that was just such a surprise, such a shock. Um, you know, nobody in the crowd, I can tell you, ever would have probably imagined or dreamed that Nomi Malone would be there and and, and presenting the film in person. And, and and you know, she said something that really stuck with me was. It was the first time she had watched the film in 20 years uh, with an audience that embraced it. And mm. so that really, uh, really, really, really hit hit me. And I, after that, I was just curious um, and I wanted to kind of dive deeper into Showgirls um, and, and kind of figure out my own, understand my own kind of fascination and curiosity around the film. And so I started to kind of read and consume everything that had been written about it, all the reviews. Paul Verhoeven's book, um, you know, Adam Naiman's book was was incredibly fascinating. Uh, and then I just started to kind of dive deeper and and, and just consume everything that had been um, produced around it for the last twenty years at that point. And I my my day my day job I'm, I'm a television editor, so it seemed like the perfect kind of of project to kind of explore. Um, and I was definitely inspired by documentaries like room 237 and los yes. angeles plays itself and i thought like oh, okay like that's like a really those are really interesting examples and of, of format uh, of what can be done and i thought showgirls is kind of begging for uh, uh you know a, a kind of treatment like that or kind of be approached like that you know i wanted to approach it very seriously um and kind of analyze the afterlife of it and analyze our relationship to it and how you know it, it, it continues to evolve and so you know I, I didn't really wasn't interested in making a behind the scenes or making of um documentary about it so i i once i spoke to the contributors who you know um shaped the conversation around showgirls for the last at that point 20 years you know i thought like well there's definitely something here uh, to to explore and so it just kind of allowed me to 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 work on my own spare time you know i edited this thing on my laptop on my kitchen table you know uh in evenings and weekends and you know we we didn't shoot a frame of video it was all audio interviews original audio interviews that i shipped a audio kit to each contributor and and then that took about nine months and you know it took maybe about a year and a half of editing it to kind of to figure out what it was that you know what the story was but uh but here we are it's, it's out now you could have easily made a documentary that was a a full-on love fest but you chose to also feature the voices the critics of 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 people who didn't like the movie just just as much as they did uh, people who did like showgirls um why was it important to feature those voices as well um because clearly i think you really run the show a really diverse range of voices in the movie didn't you yeah i mean that was my my uh that was definitely a priority going into it was was i wanted to have a kind of an honest conversation about it and you know i i do think you know so much of what is fascinating about showgirls is the response to it and that that is part of the you know the allure and like the the mythology of showgirls is the way in which it was rejected by the mainstream media and by critics and and so i wanted to find critics who 
still can speak, you know, still, you know, their opinions about the film haven't changed. And that was actually one of the harder things to do was, you know, I just started kind of reaching out to all the, the, the critics who were reviewing movies at the time. And, and, you know, most of them didn't hear back from, and, you know, some of them who I did hear back from weren't interested in kind of defending or participating in anything kind of related to showgirls. Um, but luckily I did, you know, I did find, you know, um, Barbara Showgrasser Parker and she, you know, was kind of my great dissenting voice and, you know, also found Susan Wazina who gave it a favorable review at mm. the time and, and, and understood the, 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 saw the camp aspects. But one of the interesting things about it though was I, 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 the, the contributors themselves still offer up a lot of, you know, criticism around the film. So, I mean, you can deeply love the film and, uh, and understand, you know, its flaws and understand why, why certain aspects are problematic. But, you know, that doesn't take away anything from the, you know, the enjoyment and like the, the beauty of it, you know, what makes it special. So I think just having those honest conversations um, about the film was, was uh, really interesting just to hear, you know, some of the harshest criticism about the film coming from people who love it. Yeah. So you, it's an interesting thing, like a film doesn't need to necessarily be good uh commas to be um enjoyable um and like one of my favorite movies to watch is roadhouse a patrick swayze film from from 989 mm-hmm. it's not necessarily a good movie but mm-hmm. i'll be damned if i don't have fun while watching it i like mm-hmm. i like greased part two my I, oh, yeah, in fact yeah. i was having a big argument with my, my younger brother because he was telling me that greased two is better than greased one and i'm too much of a john travolta <laughs> fan to to adhere to that opinion <laughs> but still it's just one of those things you, you watch these movies and well not necessarily you know in the way of how you critique a film you could call it a good movie but it's an enjoyable movie and i think that's a really cool thing to do you can actually watch a film take on its flaws but still like it can't you yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that, you know, that's one thing that Showgirls allows us to do is just kind of it questions the the, the definition of, of, you know, what's good, what's bad, um, what, what we deem a success, what, you know, what what's considered a failure, because it it you know, people can make arguments for every, every, uh, aspect of that. You know, they could say it is a bad movie. It's a good movie. It failed. It, it is a success. But I mean, just the fact that, you know, um, we're still talking about it now. I mean, most, you know, uh, I, I can guarantee you some, some of the best movies that were made in 1995 or came out in 1995, you know, we'll probably still not be talking about 10, 20, you know, 50 years from now. But I, I still I have this feeling that Showgirls will will still be something that um, it cre- I mean, it created such a such a mess. And it was such, you know, the, the scale in which um, it. It, I mean, everything that kind of surrounded it. I mean, you know, here you had Paul Verhoeven and Joe Esterhaus had, had just come off of a huge hit, Basic Instinct. And, you know, they, they got their green light to um, to make an NC-17 film from a major studio, MGM. And that was unheard of at the time. And so the, they, they were they were kind of already in uncharted waters. And then, 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 you know, they had a blank check. They could kind of, Paul knew that he could kind of get away with whatever he wanted. And so I think, you know, that kind of, it, that is a huge factor into the way in which people uh, responded to it and the way that they talked about it and the way they rejected it too, you know, and, and, um, and, and ultimately that's why people are drawn to it and why, you know, cult fans and, you know, the queer community has been, you know, has embraced it for, for 25 years. So Showgirls was released in 1995 and I believe that that year of 95 
technology really played a big part in how people approached movies as a whole. I mean, Mm -hmm. at that time, the internet really started to become mainstream. You had Mm -hmm. things like Windows 95 was just released. Yahoo just came online. People were online and they were on chat rooms. And and then these communities began to sprout, and especially those who talked about pop culture and especially cult Mm -hmm. movies. Um, how much do you think that technology had to do with the second act for Showgirls? Because in 95, the first DVD came out as well. And like, as everyone knows, Showgirls really had its 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 big run on both VHS and DVD. Yeah, I mean, that that was, I mean, it, it's, it, they, it's still considered one of MGM's uh, top grossing, I think top 20 grossing films based on the money it made on VHS and sales and, and rentals. So, I mean, even from a commercial standpoint, you know, it, it's, it's by no means a failure, but, um, but yeah, it's an interesting um, uh, thought about just the kind of the technology of where, where we were at and, you know, the internet was in its, its early days. And, and I think then people were able to kind of find each other uh, like-minded audiences. And, you know, I mean, Showgirls is like that classic, you know, midnight movie mm-hmm. experience where, you know, similar to like a Rocky horror or, you know, um, like we explore and, and, you don't know me, mommy dearest and Valley of the dolls, you know, are also, you know, films that I think people and audiences connect with and they and it also allows them to connect to each other you know um so i i think that's a big important thing is is you know we use these movies movies are ways that we obviously connect to each other and for you know marginalized communities i, I think that that is you know a key into you know their the the, the you know how much we're, you know how much we love something you know in regards to what you spoke of their marginalized communities i mean cult films have always been around um, but in regards mm-hmm. to movies like Showgirls, and maybe to a certain aspect, something like The Room as well, um, mm-hmm. in other in other movies in that sort of so bad it's good, um, you know, category. Do you think the appeal to some of these movies lies in that these films have essentially been ostracized from like the communities, like from they like these unwanted outsiders that the mainstream has rejected, and that a group of people are really kind of taken onto their own, who maybe themselves have been ostracized from their own communities. Definitely. I mean, yeah, that was one of the one of the interesting things about uh, Showgirls specifically that never really, you know, I've always been drawn to it. But, you know, one of the interesting views that I uncovered was Matt Baum's take about, you know, the LGBTQ community and how, you know, specifically with Nomi's journey, you know, it is uniquely queer. You know, here she she left her, you know, she she moves uh, to a big city, leaves her small town behind her and you know wants to reinvent herself and follow her dreams and and you know has a chosen family who looks after her and you know and whether you know whether you agree with it or not you know uses her sexuality to kind of you know um to 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 get the things that she wants and achieve her goals and i think a lot of people can relate to that uh and that was something that um i obviously as a as a gay man like connect with but you know it's one of those things like you're not that's not completely aware. You, you, I wasn't aware of that for the last, like for the first 10 years of, of you know, kind of loving the film. So, um, but I do think that that's part of why 
those audiences and, and, you know, kind of congregate towards those types of films is, you know, they are rejected. They are rejected by mainstream. I mean, you can't have a cult, um, a cult film, you know, true, true cult or true camp, you know, that, that, you know, <laughs> made millions and millions and millions of dollars at the box office. You know, it just, it just wouldn't, it, that just wouldn't work, you know? And so I think, um, yeah, I mean, the room is definitely probably one of the closer, like you mentioned, closer, you know, kind of modern day examples of, of something similar, even though it was a small, you know, independent film that, um, so, you know, you can't really kind of compare the two coming from a big studio like MGM, but, um, but yeah, the other one that gets kind of tossed around is Cats, and, you know, it's hard to kind of, like, you know, I don't know where we'll be in kind of 10 years with the movie Cats, but, um, I mean, it was based on a, one of the most successful Broadway musicals of all time. So I, you know, I don't know um, if even that could, uh, would allow for, you know, a true cult film. In in You Don't Know Me, you look at the work of Paul Verhoeven. Um, Now, (laughs) a lot of people know his stuff more from the, the, his string of Hollywood hits like Robocop, Total Recall, especially Basic Instinct. You mentioned before that um, the work that in setting that film kind of really set the ground for what will become with Showgirls. Um, but his pre-Hollywood work, not many people were into unless like they're serious, like into the whole kind of film critic life. Um, what about yourself? Like, did you know much about his work prior to like Robo, um, Robocop and such? And what was it about his early work that really struck you? I mean, not at all. I, I hadn't seen any of his early films um, until starting this project. And, and that was one of the parts of just the kind of the research phase that I felt like I needed to do um, early on. And, and I started, um, you know, as you know, coming from an American perspective, I think one of the reasons why Showgirls doesn't make sense to most people is because they're only familiar with his, you know, like you said, his Hollywood uh action films and, yep. and basic instinct and, and those types of, of films. And so when you, when you have a, a director who made RoboCop, Total Recall, Starship Troopers, you know, you, um, and then they, they hear they did something like girls, it doesn't make sense. But one of the surprising things that, that I found when watching his early European films is I just was blown away to see all the connections kind of point back to showgirls, like the, the weird things that, that, you know, that make showgirls special and to make it jump out, you know, all had seeds in his early, all had seeds in his early work. And, um, so that was one of the surprising things was just like the, the kind of repetition, um, of a lot of his motifs and themes and, you know, characters and you know he just play he he plays he likes certain things and he reuses them you know consistently throughout his uh films and so that was one one thing i wanted to do was just then i had felt like i had to find a way to incorporate all of his other films um into it because you can't look at i didn't think at that point that you could look at showgirls by itself i think you had to kind of you know analyze his work as a whole and connect everything back to that and so um yeah i wanted to find a way to kind of make a new subplot where paul verhoeven's films and and the characters within them are interacting with you know the contributors of nomi and um and their experiences i want to put a hypothetical to you in regards to showgirls um in paul verhoeven's trajectory of, of his filmmaking if showgirls was made in europe and it was released before his kind of like his time in Hollywood. Do you think the reception towards it would be different? Do you think critics will look at it as kind of like a Eurocentric film and maybe would have forgiven some of the things in the film 
that they wouldn't have considering the budget, the studio, and that it came after all of these huge successes? Yeah, that's an interesting thought. I mean, I guess it would, uh, yeah, if, 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 you know, you just took everything about Showgirls and, went, you know, released it over over there and, or made it in Europe, uh, then, yeah, I do think that it probably would have been perceived much differently. Um, but then, yeah, you know, here you had um, uh, a film like Showgirls where, you know, it takes place in, in Las Vegas, which is, you know, a uniquely American city. I mean, no other, you know, there's no other city on it, like on earth. And so, you know, he, he is commenting on, you know, American society and culture and, and capitalism and greed and, and, and all those things. And, you know, I, I think, you know, he's even said in his book of essays is, you know, he holds a mirror up to life and, you know, he presents it as it is, not how, you know, people may wish it to be. So, you know, maybe it was too hard for people to kind of, you know, they didn't like what they were seeing at the time. And that's why, you know, it, it, you know, it was rejected so much. But but yeah, that is an interesting thought of like what, you know, how it would have been perceived, you know, over in Europe first. Usually when a film like Showgirls is released and it flops in the way it does, it can have an effect on the careers of the filmmakers and the actors. Looking at this film, though, Paul Verhoeven bounced back quite considerably afterwards with a bunch of movies. He even won a Golden Globe a couple of years ago for Elle, which is uh, really fascinating. Colin McLaughlin still had a career. Gina Gershon still had a career. Elizabeth Berkley, though, she's the one that really took the biggest hit out of all of it. Is Did that come really come down to maybe perhaps, I don't know... Um, her being the, the 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 face of the film, definitely. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that you know it it is. I mean, the movie, she's in every single scene in the film. I mean, it, it, she's so central to to showgirls and that performance and her her performance makes it what you know it makes it special and make it makes it what people you know are, are drawn to. And so I think that having and and you know i think gina and kyle uh had other roles that they could kind of fall back on mm-hmm. but you know yeah this was her her big break out of saved by the bell and her first feature film and, and you know she took a huge chance and huge risks and and um put herself out there and i think that yeah i was i was glad to see him kind of paul um own up and take responsibility for you know his direction and her performance years later um but but yeah you know in you know she still continued to work you know um but i i just think it, it probably didn't work work out and obviously the response was just something that um no one ever you know would have intended or would have wanted and and, and that was one thing that i wanted to look at is just the way in which, you know, her performance specifically was like, you know, I feel unfairly singled out. And, you know, there were some words and criticism, uh, you know, rejected towards her that uh, I don't think would ever, ever, you know, um, count as criticism in today's world. So, you know, hopefully we learned a little bit. But, um, but yeah, it was just terrible the way that she was treated and, you know, spoken about. When I was doing some research after watching your documentary, I was very interested to find that there was actually a a sequel of some sort, Showgirls 2, Pennies from Heaven, that um, was starred, directed, and was written by Rena Riffel. She played the role of, uh, I think it was Penny in the, uh, mm-hmm. the original film. In regards to the fans of Showgirls, the community, where does this sequel kind of, is, is it something that really exists in the, kind of like the, the world of that Paul Verhoeven made, is it acknowledged at all? Is this something kind of like the ugly stepsister that people kind of don't even talk about that much? 
It's you know there are two very different uh, different films. I mean, I love uh, Rena and her performance and and what she did with Showgirls too. I mean, it is a very unique. I mean, if it, it, it's it's more, I guess. You know, I think she probably picked up some stuff from, you know, it skews more towards like David Lynch than, you know, Paul Verhoeven, I, I would say. But um, but yeah, and I don't think a lot of people know about it. And so I, I think it's that was one thing, you know, I, I asked a lot of the contributors about that. And that was one thing I kind of wish I would have been able to kind of focus more on. But, you know, it, it was, um, you know, it, it's a separate film and, and it would be kind of hard to to kind of connect it back to um, what, you know, the, the story that we were telling here. So, um, but yeah, it, it's, it's one of those things that I think a lot of people don't know exists. And so um, I, I think even with the diehard Showgirls fans, um, you know, it, it, they kind of exist as two kind of separate entities. <laughs> um, considering the newfound fandom that the movie has and the strong, there's, there is a strong loyalty there in community. Do you think Showgirls could be, I don't know, remade, repackaged in maybe say like a, would you watch it if it was a 10 part Netflix series, for example, would that work? You think? Um, I would say no. Um, I guess it would kind of depend on the angle, but I just, I mean, the magic of showgirls is, you know, that failed seriousness. And I think that the moment you try to, uh, to kind of recreate that, it, it, yeah, it just would feel cheap and and uh, yeah, I just can't imagine anything like that ever ever working. I mean, I mean it, you know, if someone tried and you know it, it turned out interesting or funny or good, you know, then I you know I'm obviously if, if someone tried, I would love to see you know what they do. But I, I just feel like so much of what makes it special is the things that you know weren't necessarily. I think planned on or, you know, weren't intended. And I think that that's, you know, you could direct, I mean, if someone was directed to, to give that performance, I think that it would ultimately just fall flat, you know? Um, and some of the things and the choices, uh, you know, Paul made in the film, I just, it, yeah, I just don't think it would work. Um, this is your debut movie. Um, and, Showgirls is clearly a subject that you are passionate about, and that's why you made the documentary on it. Um, now that you don't know me, you've had your festival run, now it's out in digital on demand. Um, have you ever put into thought as to what is next for you? Will you dive into something similar, or are you looking to kind of venture out into different type of filmmaking after this? I definitely want to stay uh, in the documentary world um, and still you know, focus on, you know, somewhere within the pop cultural landscape. I don't think I'll focus on another film next. I'm still trying to kind of, uh, you know, uh, find the right project, uh, to focus on next. So, um, but yeah, definitely still continue making docs. I mean, it's, it, this has been so fun. Um, and I've just been blown away by the response and everything that, um, that you know everything that we've done so far and so it, it's been really encouraging to see you know a lot of the reviews and people uh who've been finally you know have been hearing about it for the last year at the festivals finally be able to watch it and uh respond to it and it just is, is encouraging that you know this type of approach to a subject is is something that people um are kind of craving for 
So for everyone out there listening, You Don't Know Me, currently available on demand in digital, you can go to youdon'tknowmefilm.com to find links to all the different places that are currently um, streaming the film or where you can get it on demand, um, and also more info about the movie as well. And uh, Jeffrey, congratulations to you. I noticed the labor of love, and it, it came out terrific. It really did. I think a lot of people are going to watch this and have a newfound appreciation for the movie Showgirls, and um, if that was your goal, you, you certainly hit it out the ballpark. Well, thank you, Matt. I appreciate it. I'm glad you liked the film.